Um, we're here to celebrate Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered over to death for our trespasses, for our sin, but that he was raised to life for our justification. Catch that. He had to die. The payment for sin has always been death, and he was raised back to life, conquering the last enemy of death, which our sin brings about. So we're here to celebrate that over anything else. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing. Make no mistake, we're unapologetic about it this morning. So I'm going to open us in prayer. You can turn in your Bibles if you want to, to uh, I think it's page 906 if you have a pew Bible in front of you. But John chapter 20 and 21, that's pretty much where we're going to be all morning. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience that led to a sacrifice that was of inestimable pain to you, but of tremendous benefit to us. And so we come here saying, Lord, we repent of sin that we're holding, and we want to see you. We want to see you do awesome and mighty things in this church, in our lives, in this community, in this country, in this world. So right now, whatever fears are holding us back, um, whatever difficulties we have, we lay them at your feet, and we say, open our ears and our eyes to see and hear today. Amen. So it's kind of interesting, uh, perhaps you've heard the phrase, he's somebody to be reckoned with. Um, this, is, this would be something that you would see maybe like in a sporting uh, atmosphere, somebody's up and coming and they're doing really well in their sport and pretty soon you'll start to hear some of the sports announcers say, oh, this guy, he's someone to be reckoned with, which means you, you have to get to a point where you, you cannot ignore this person. And so this morning, we're applying that same understanding that you have to reckon with the resurrection. It can't be ignored if you are a human being. You just simply can't go past it. And if you get nothing else this morning, my hope is that you catch this, that the resurrection of Jesus is the only hope for humanity. It's just the only hope. We saw already in our text this morning, and I'm going to outline them just for us, kind of four basic things. And they're common to all humans. There's tears, like what do we do with our sadness? What do we do with the difficulties we face? There's fears, things that we can't control, things from within and things from without that come upon us. There's doubts, and there's shame. And you can see these played out in the different characters. You see Mary being uh, one who is crying. You see the disciples locked behind uh, doors for fear of the Jews. You see Thomas who says, look, I'm never going to believe unless you show me something. He's got doubts. And then you see Peter, who is racked with shame. And Jesus comes to take care of it. So I think it's interesting to note that Mary and, and a couple of the other women, the Gospel of Luke tells us, actually show up at the tomb uh, before the disciples. They're there to give Jesus a proper burial and take care of things. They're there in faith, too. But you can't really blame everybody else who's wondering, what happened? Give me some evidence. Show me something. I need to see. And as we talk about Mary and the disciples and Thomas and Peter, I want you to look at them as types. People who struggle with various things just like you. And I want you to be asking the Lord as you're listening this morning, am I, am I like Mary? Am I like Thomas? 
Am I like the disciples? Am I like Peter? And then just see how the text answers the questions that you may have. So first, let's begin with the tears of Mary. Let's notice, first of all, that one of the things that happens with Mary is that she's at the tomb. You caught it in our text where you see Mary standing there at the tomb and she's weeping. And, and she's, first of all, at the tomb. Right? She wasn't in isolation. She wasn't pulled away. She wasn't going to go uh, on her own. She's at the tomb, but she's weeping. But I want you to notice, first of all, what does Jesus not say? Jesus doesn't walk up to her and say, hey, I'd like it if you pulled yourself together. Um, many of us have grown up in a context where to cry is weakness. To demonstrate sadness means that you, there's a chink in your armor. There's, some, there's something wrong. And so here's Jesus, and he comes up behind Mary, and he, and he asks, I, would you love to be Jesus? Right? <laughs> who are you searching for? <laughs> like he doesn't know. So he's like, who are you looking for? And she immediately, not even recognizing him, is like, well, I'm looking for my Lord. They've taken him away. You must be the gardener, I'm sure. Like, just let me know. And he says, Mary, can you imagine that? Can you imagine in that moment of your deepest grief, you've given your life over to like three years of following this man around, to financing his ministry, to seeing his every word and deed, and then you're just crushed because all your hope is buried in a grave. And he says, Mary. He just says her name. It's just one sentence, just Mary. That's it. And she's undone. See, to have your name called is to be seen and heard. You see this same thing playing out in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 16, we read the story uh, of a woman who is under horrible treatment by her master. Her name's Hagar. And she ends up going out to the wilderness. And she has this encounter with God. And, and there's a name that she uses in the Hebrew where she calls him El Shaddai. And our Elroi, meaning like the God who sees. Like she, she even gives him this name, like, you are the God who sees me. She felt totally unseen in her circumstance and in the mistreatment that she was experiencing. And she goes out to the desert and she names God after this name that he means. Like, wow, you see me in my struggles. And then she gives the name to her yet unborn son, Ishmael, which means God hears. And if you're tracking, that means every time she's calling Ishmael's name in the future for dinner or for anything else, she's reminding herself, God sees me and God hears me. How powerful is that? So what do you do with your tears? What do you do with your sadness? To whom or to where do you run? I think it's critical that Mary, it says, as she wept, like while she's doing the act of weeping, she stoops to look into the tomb. Could you imagine what must be going on in her heart as she's leaning over to look in this empty tomb? I would be freaked out. I'm getting ready to take out my deck, and I have like a little patio, and underneath it there's like a couple of cinder blocks, and I'm breaking I'm, I'm going to find some dead bodies under there or something. It's freaking me out. And she's looking in this tomb, and she's like, she's there. She's showing up. And then Jesus calls her name. And so I just say this, that our tears, our sorrow is sweetened 
by being seen and heard. Notice I say it's not removed. It's sweetened. Those of us who've experienced hard things that make us very sad, you can't just wave a wand and make it go away. You don't make your husband come back. You don't get a second chance in some places. And you might be deeply sad, but sorrow is sweetened by being seen and heard by Jesus. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the only hope for humanity. And then right after this, Mary sprints back to gather with the other disciples, and she's like, look, I've seen the Lord, and here's what he said. And, and actually, if you read Luke, uh, there's a little bit of an account there where it says, and they didn't believe her words because they seemed like an idle tale. Thanks, fellas. Like, <laughs> here I am with a very valid experience, and you're like, sorry, we don't believe you. And so Jesus loves this idea of breaking boundaries in boxes. And, and so they're in a box, locked, because they're fearful of the Jews. Now, I want to be clear, that's a very valid thing. That would be like the Christian openly practicing in Afghanistan and standing on the pre street corners preaching the gospel. It's just dangerous. And you know what? They're locked in a room because they're scared. I'd be scared. You'd be scared. But then Jesus appears among them. Okay, advantage Jesus. Doesn't really have to pay attention to walls and things of this nature. And he's right there next to them. Okay, first of all, who was the first disciple who noticed? Who would just kind of, oh, uh, <laughs> something happening behind me, right? And then Jesus, in like the most obvious statement ever, just says, peace be with you. Because after needing to change your underwear, you would need peace. You would be scared. <laughs> like he's standing right there. Consider the tension in the room. Like, fellas, I told you about all this. But again, Jesus came to Mary. Jesus then comes to the disciples. And I want you to again see what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, fellas, are you kidding me? For three years, I predicted that I was going to be delivered over to death. I was going to be horribly treated. I was going to be wrongly convicted. I was going to be, I was going to be dead. I was going to be killed for your sin, for, for the sin of the world. Like this, I talked about this for three years. Get it together. What are you doing? He doesn't say that. He leads with peace. Just take that in for a minute. He leads with peace. When your fear is crippling, can you identify? Has your fear ever been crippling to the degree in nature that you just couldn't even wrap your mind around how you were going to get to the next day? Consider our world currently. Our cultural moment is marked by fear and anxiety. You see, with the enlightenment of the 1700s came science and reason as supreme. And the promise they brought with them was assured progress, liberty, tolerance. And right on the heels of the enlightenment was the industrial revolution. The march toward ease and expedience and engineering feats that are going to make our lives more convenient. We're going to eradicate disease and war and poverty. And How are we doing? Right? Like we've been at this for years, seeking in all the wrong places and coming up with all the right answers, we think. And here's Jesus, appearing behind locked doors, 
saying, peace. How can he say such outlandish things? Seriously. How is he able to say, peace be with you, when the world is totally crumbling? It's because he's promising his Holy Spirit. If you go back to the Last Supper in John 14, you can mark it and read this later. But Jesus talks about this idea that when he goes to the Father, he's going to give them the promised Holy Spirit. And what's the result of having his Spirit literally dwell inside of you? If you repent of your sins and turn to him in faith, and he deposits his Spirit in you, the result is that you'll have comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-11 talks about that. Or maybe it's this idea that you're never separated from God. Abandoned, but never alone. How about that? Jesus in John 16 is having this conversation with his disciples, and he's promising, in this world you will have trouble, right? But take heart, I've overcome the world, right? In the verse right before that, he actually says this phrase where he's like, look, you guys are all going to scatter when I get killed. But I'm never alone. Why? Because the Father's with me. And this is the same promise that's true of you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Father has deposited his spirit in you. You can be abandoned by everyone. You'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. So fear is overcome by inseparable love. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul begins with this phrase, I am sure of this. And then he goes on to talk about how nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because a stone and a dead body didn't stop him. So what else possibly could? Nothing. So our tears and our fears have been reckoned with the resurrection. How about our doubts? Here we have Thomas, who was not with the others when it first happened. And I love this account. Again, Jesus came to Mary. Jesus came to the disciples. What's he do with Thomas? He comes to Thomas. And Thomas has this totally understandable statement when he's talking with the disciples. Unless I see this, I will never believe. How many of you have been there? Unless I see you change, I'm never going to take you at your word. Unless I, I will never. Unless, never. Unless, never. And then we remain crippled in this doubt-ridden state because we are demanding something from God. And then Jesus, in utter kindness, comes up and says, hey, look, just right here, you you can feel where the nails went through. Right here where my side was pierced, there's, there's a scar there. I want you to put your finger right in that. Just, could you, first of all, could you imagine the weirdness of that if you're Thomas? Like here Jesus pulls his robe back, right? Ribs exposed, there's a big gouge there, sticks his finger in there. He's like, I guess I'll just stick my finger there. (laughs) What are you gonna do at that point? Like, and here's the deal. Rosaria Butterfield had this statement where she says, Good teachers make it possible for someone to change positions without shame. How beautiful is that? So you have this idea that Thomas is cramming his fingers into the ribs of Jesus and and feeling the holes in his hands where he was hung on the cross. And Jesus isn't going, "Mm mm-hmm, right, now? No, he's going, now? Now? Would you? And then he's saying, look, blessed are you who've seen, but look at the rest of us. 
If we're here and we have faith in Jesus Christ, I didn't have the advantage of sticking my fingers into ribs or right here in his hands. But guess what? Jesus is not put off by my doubts. Whatever they need, he is not put off. In fact, he engages my doubts. One theologian says it this way, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's an element of it. Think about those things for which you have been uncertain in the past, for which you are now certain, and ask yourself, how did you get there? How did you traverse that length and get there to where you believed? And I would argue it's probably because of an encounter that you've had with God. You see, God honors the struggle for faith. In Mark 9, there's a story told of how Jesus is providing healing uh, as part of his ministry. And he comes to one man and he says to him, like, hey, do you believe that I can do this healing? And he says, like, the most self-canceling statement ever, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> You're like, okay, doesn't that sound like a teenager thing to say? Um, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm waffling back and forth. Are you there? Is that where you find yourself this morning where you're like, I totally believe. It, it may be a better way to say it is this. I want to believe, but I can't. In fact, when Jesus says to, to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe, disbelief is not anti-belief. I'm not against believing. That's what Jesus is saying to him. He's like, Thomas, maybe think of it this way. You're not against believing. You're just having trouble getting there. If we thought about people who doubted the Christian faith that way, how much more gracious would we be? So God honors the struggle for faith. Secondly, the struggle is real and we all have it. I mean, show me one seasoned Christian who has lived a long life with the Lord, who did not also have various seasons where they said, uh, am I on track here? It's part of faith. Doubt is overcome by a personal encounter. Because see what Thomas does. Thomas crams his fingers there, looks at the hands, and then he says, my Lord and my God. It's the strongest declaration of the lordship and divinity of Jesus Christ in one sentence in all of the book of John. And it belongs to the one who doubted the most. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the only hope for humanity. And finally, we have shame. We've got Peter. In, in chapter 21, verses 15 through 19, tells the story of Peter being asked three times by Jesus, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, yes. And are you serious, Lord? And Jesus is like, well, bro, like not long ago, <laughs> you know, if you'll recall, you denied me three times. But here's the, the story. And I love this. Jesus comes to Mary. Jesus comes to the disciples. Jesus comes to Thomas. And then he gets to Peter. Now, they were out fishing that morning. I did, we didn't read the first chunk of chapter 21. They're out fishing the disciples, and they're catching nothing. And Jesus, from the shore, they're about 100 yards offshore, and he calls out, like, hey, throw the net on this side. Again, for people who like to fish, like a Brent Gregory, how nice would it be to have a fish finder like that? That's pretty sweet, right? So they cast the nets over and they catch huge fish and they haul it in. But when Jesus is talking to them from the shore, 
he starts a fire and he's got some fish there and he's cooking on the fire and, and, and Peter sees him and he turns to the others. He's like, it's my Lord! And he tosses on his cloak and he jumps in the water and pff, makes it for the shore as quick as he can. Now, it's really interesting if you look at John 21, there's, there's a space there where it says uh, on the shore that there was a charcoal fire. And you're like, well, why does that matter? If you scroll back a few pages, I think to John chapter 18, verse 18, Peter denies Jesus at a charcoal fire. I think it's on purpose that Jesus makes sure it's a charcoal fire that he's making fish on right there. You know why? Because now Peter's like, oh, crud. There's a charcoal fire. And he's like, there's my Lord. He's right there. He's risen from there, right? And he sees the charcoal fire and think of the shame that is coming. Okay? Now, you can imagine this easily when you think about any sin that you've done that is about to have the flashlight shined on it. And you're like, uh, I'm not so sure I'm excited about that. I don't think Peter was either. So he sees the charcoal fire and he comes on shore. And when he sees this, you've got this very real guttural like, oh. So Jesus visits him in his place of shame. Jesus doesn't avoid it. He doesn't sidestep it. He doesn't not talk about it. But he certainly doesn't let it have power. Notice how Jesus doesn't say, hey, you remember that time when you denied me? How does Jesus restore him? He doesn't, he doesn't make him repeat it. He just makes him repeat that he loves him three times. How many times did Jesus deny him? Three times. How many times did Jesus say, do you love me? Three times. Jesus is about completeness. He never does a halfway job. He doesn't partially deliver. He doesn't kind of forgive. He doesn't somewhat redeem. He is all in, all the time. And so when Peter is overcoming shame, he's realizing that there is a powerful phrase at the very end of John chapter 21, verse 19. After Jesus tells Peter, here's how you're going to die, he says this follow me. That's it. Follow me. Now here's the deal. You may be wondering, what about my shame? What about my doubts? What about my fears? What about my tears? And I would just say this, why does it all matter that Jesus not only went to the cross, but walked out of the grave? Right here. Jesus himself tells us in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44, he says this. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. A little reminder, for three years I've been telling you this, right? And then he says this. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, so basically the whole Old Testament, everything written about me must be fulfilled. So everything is a storyline pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus is telling them that. And then it says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That must mean that I can't fully understand something in the scriptures without the help of his Holy Spirit to illumine what he's written. And so Jesus is telling him, and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and here it is, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are my witnesses of these things. And then he goes on to talk about how he is going to empower them and fill them with his spirit to proclaim something new. 
Because when you save someone, when you overcome their tears, fears, doubts, and shame, you got to give them something to live for. Just pulling them out of what they're struggling with does nothing good. Give them something to proclaim. So my question is, do you want something worth living for this morning? Do you want the invitation that Jesus gives where he overcomes all in your life and he says, follow me, follow me. Don't think in terms of getting everything right. I did. Keep your eyes on me. Follow me. And Jesus is telling his disciples, okay, now here's one of the ways that you do that. Here is the preeminent, most important way. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what gets proclaimed. So as we wrap up, my question is this. Will you reckon with the resurrection? Or better yet, will your sin, sometimes in the form of tears and fears and shame and doubt, will those things, will you give those to God and allow his resurrection to reckon them? That means like you just can't ignore it. You can't ignore that he's the best and only solution for humanity. He is. Always has been. Always will be. And so we need to get to that place. And so as we wrap up, as I pray here, uh, if, if this is something where the Lord is just really pressing in and you want to stay back for prayer or for a conversation, I'll hang out for a little bit. And there'll be others, I'm sure, who would too. But don't pass this moment. Don't think, oh, I've got plenty of time. This is powerful. This is, this is the Spirit moving to get us to a place of surrendering fully and completely to Him. So would you bow with me? Father, thank you that you are who you say you are. That Jesus, your resurrection, is the only hope for humanity. And right now, just humbly, we lay ourselves before you and we say, Jesus, you are everything. As we celebrate now with family and friends and have this weekend to reflect on your goodness and on your power, uh, help us not to focus in on ourselves, but instead to turn to you. You are the God who was raised from the dead. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.